the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. AM 1160. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by my co-host Ian Simpkins. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or online at 1160hope.com. Also, you can call us at any point today, area code 312-660-2594. That's 312-660-2594. Ian, we've got a, we have a, uh, a window in our, in our studio here, and this is something I haven't recognized in a long time. The sun is coming in. <laughs> I think it's been a while since we've actually seen the what, sun. What is that fire in the sky right now? <laughs> it's almost off-putting. <laughs> well, you've been, over the last couple of weeks, we always talk about how tired you are because you have kids. That's right. Last night, my wife's Christmas present, I got her tickets to Hamilton. So her and I went last night and got home really late. Nice. So. I had a very similar evening. I passed out on the couch at 725. <laughs> So very similar types of Tuesday nights. <laughs> oh, it was good. So I'll tell you some more stories about Hamilton later because it was fabulous. Really? But some fun stories, some fun stories. Well, we're glad you're joining us today. Uh, and we wanted to jump right in. Kind of the big story in the Christian world, in the church world, uh, are the meetings going on with the United Methodist uh, Church and that denomination. Uh, the United Methodist, Methodist Church has been meeting to specifically talk about lots of things at their denominational meetings. But specifically, a lot of press coming from their conversations uh, over LGBTQ issues, um, ordaining clergy, same-sex marriage, and all this stuff. And if you've—I'm sure your Twitter feed, like mine, has just been kind of blowing up. Yeah, on both both sides of the coin. On both sides. On both sides. And so I don't feel like either you or I have much to— uh, to add to this, because we're not Methodists, so we're really excited to be joined right now uh, by a Methodist pastor. His name is Scott Field. Scott is the senior pastor of First Church uh, in Crystal Lake, Illinois. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be with you guys. Uh, yes, everybody's Twitter feed, Facebook, <laughs> everything, and social media has exploded today. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, with that in mind, as a Methodist pastor, could you just kind of catch us up uh, on what has been going on in the Methodist Church leading up to this, but more so over the last couple of days? Sure. Uh, let me try to be brief. Uh, United Methodist Church has been uh, struggling since 1972. Uh, over issues of homosexuality, gender identity, and uh, and related issues. At that time, uh, we have something called the Book of Discipline, and that, that sort of uh, tells us how the church is organized, what we believe, our social principles, theology, etc., and uh, how people are ordained or appointed. We have an assist- a system where bishops appoint us to our congregations. 
And uh, anyway, since 1972, there's been a statement in there that the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. And over the years between then and now, uh, additional statements have been added that marriage is uh, the relationship, exclusive relationship between one man and one woman that uh, those who are uh, actively involved in a gay or lesbian relationship uh, will not be received as candidates for ministry or appointed by bishops uh, to ministry or continued in an appointment to ministry. Um, And uh, and that uh, ordination standards, uh, because we do that on a regional basis, uh, have to include uh, questions about a person's uh, lifestyle, uh, including lifestyle related to sexuality. So as you can imagine, given changes in uh, North American culture, uh, there's been quite a disconnect. And uh, finally, uh, we've had two, we we meet together every four years, delegates from around the world in what's called a general conference. Mm -hmm. In 2016, uh, we had a general conference in Portland, Oregon, and it looked like everything was going to fall apart over the LGBTQ uh, issues of ministry to and with that community. So uh, the pause button was hit. A commission was formed to see if there was any way that we could go forward together. <clears throat> commission uh, gave its recommendations of three different plans on how we might go forward together. And uh, then the bishops called a special session of the general conference that met starting last Saturday and finished last night um, with just this one issue. Uh, how do we resolve our differences on LGBTQ uh, ministry and how can we go forward together. That, so that's where we were yesterday and a decision was made. Uh, I don't know if you want me to go on with the, the three. One, essentially the plans go like this. <clears throat> one was let's maintain our current standard that was called the traditional plan with additional provisions for uh, censure uh, for bishops or clergy who don't abide by those rules. Mm. Uh, The other plan was called the One Church Plan, which meant every uh, local congregation and every uh, pastor uh, and every region uh, will make up its own mind about whether there will be same-sex weddings uh, in their church, uh, same-sex weddings performed uh, or officiated at by their pastors, and same uh, um, act- actively partnered uh, gay or lesbian persons uh, received as candidates for ministry. Hmm. So it's basically, are we going to go with a traditional version or a progressive version gotcha. is what uh, the two choices were. Okay, so, so Pastor, uh, that was uh, just really helpful, that kind of an objective black and white level, like here's what actually has happened, here's what was voted on, here's the conclusion of that. Could you Could you just speak pastorally a little bit, not only to your your own local congregation, but to the people, as we mentioned earlier, our Twitter feeds, our Facebook feeds are blowing up. I I have friends on every side of this discussion, every side of this debate. Um, Some are rejoicing, some are weeping, some are very confused. Can can you just speak pastorally to to the complexity and the mess of where a lot of people seem to feel right now? I think so. We feel that uh, here in this congregation, anybody who looked at the live stream, actually this this whole thing was live streamed yesterday, and when I checked in on it late in the day before it was going to wind up, there were 36,000 people on the live stream, wow. uh, With and that doesn't count everybody who was paying attention through other media and social uh, media. But anyway, uh, what happened was the uh, traditional plan, which is to retain the current restrictions we have, uh, was uh, that's the that's the proposal that prevailed, 
but it prevailed by a 55% to 45% essentially uh, vote, which is not a huge, it's not a mandate. No, right. And uh, the progressive side, uh, the plan that the bishops forwarded and was strongly supported, um, that didn't prevail at all. Uh, and there were also some exit provisions put together, which means it's easier, I guess I'd say, without getting into all the real estate issues, mm-hmm. it's easier for local congregations to leave the denomination if they decide so to do. It's also easier for clergy to leave uh, because we do have some issues with pensions and that sort of thing for pastors. So um, we have great uh, anxiety. There's great feeling in the LGBTQ uh, community that the church has, uh, again, excluded, hurt, uh, and attacked them. Mm-hmm. There's uh, great rejoicing in some parts of the evangelical or traditional community that um, the biblical standards and orthodox standards have prevailed. And uh, I would like to just suggest to you very quickly, because I know we don't have all afternoon mm-hmm. to discuss this, mm-hmm. though Methodists have spent four days straight discussing it. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think it indicates is several things. The, the first the outcome here, that we are not a united Methodist church, we're a untied or divided Methodist church, Mm. and that this doesn't really show us the way forward and how we get along with each other, and I expect that there'll be significant institutional and organizational fracturing that goes on. Uh, Already, uh, a number of areas of the progressive parts of the church have said they're going to leave, and... um, and honestly, also some of the evangelical side has said, if we don't get enforcement of the rules, we're leaving. So mm-hmm. as I said to somebody earlier today, I think at the end of the day, we'll have two church secretaries and three janitors left. Because everybody's <laughs> going to oh, wow. you know, yeah. find a way out. I think the other thing is, however, and this may be a little bit, I don't know whether you take this as hopeful or not. Uh, I think that the denomination determined it wants to be in the future a global Orthodox church. Uh, because 40% of our delegates, United Methodist Church has been declining like most uh, mainline Protestant denominations in the U.S., but it's been growing rapidly in Africa, Latin America, and Southeast Asia, and uh, former Russian, uh, former Soviet Union, and Eastern Europe. So 40% of the delegates that came actually came from outside the United States. Mm. And they uh, almost... Uh, completely voted in a traditional or orthodox fashion. Wow. And uh, they were very strong in their statements that we are not going to be a North American church. We are a global church. Mm -hmm. Uh, That means we have things that create problems for us that maybe others don't deal with. Yeah. Uh, I do think, though, and this is for everybody, there's continuing questions on how we're going to be in ministry with and for LGBTQ persons. Yeah. And uh, that is not resolved. And unfortunately, when you go to a situation where there's a vote up or down, let's just say uh, emotions run very high. Yeah. Things get said that uh, are very damaging and are hard to take back. So there's a lot of licking of wounds today yeah. uh, on both sides. And I and there's there's not anywhere right now, although I'm sure it will develop shortly, places that people can talk to one another across these differences, um, you know, that aren't legislative. It's just like how do we how do we retain some sense of community and respect for one yeah. another? Well, and Scott, thank been, you. That, that, yeah, that's, that's all really helpful. Right now. Yeah, we will okay. be we will be praying for you guys. It sounds like there's a lot going on for you guys. 
And uh, yep. we, we love the church. And so uh, thank you, Scott. Thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thank you. Yep. Appreciate the opportunity. Yep. Right now. You've been listening to Scott Field. He's senior pastor of First Church in Crystal Lake. Well, we're off and rolling, ma'am. This is The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. This is The Common Good with Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins on AM 1160. Hope for your life. AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160 alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Uh, You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, or you can call us at any point at 312-660-2594. That's 312-660-2594 this week, Ian. I won't make people call for your birthday. I I appreciate that. Literally one of my favorite things we've ever done here. Your father (laughs) sang happy birthday to you on the air. I was ready to shut it down right there. I'm sure somebody's running to find the podcast now. Like, wait, what happened? Uh, Yeah, that's true. Well, Ian, as people know, we're both pastors. And one thing pastors love to say is that uh, we want our churches to mirror the early church, the church of Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 and all the way through the book of Acts. Uh, And then we also say, well, that's a dangerous thing to wish upon a church, right? Because most of the disciples died or were persecuted. I was going to say, they didn't just die. They were were executed. Executed (laughs) terribly in terrible ways. Not that there's ever good ways, but in terrible ways. But with that thought... On the Gospel Coalition, Tim Keller, who, you know, I, I love to listen to Tim Keller and read Tim Keller. Uh, he did write an article recently called What We Need to Learn from the Early Church. And he looked back at the early church and said, these are some characteristics that are applicable to our churches today. And so as you interacted with that, what do you think are some of those things? What what can we take from the early church and say, yeah, you know what? We do want to be like that now, even though our context is so, so different. Yeah, and that's I, context, I think, is the operative word there, right? Like, it's easy to sometimes make blanketed statements like we want to be like the church in Acts. Um, and there's some distinct differences between now and the time of the church of Acts. So, you know, you know, in, in a number of ways, particularly in the West, Christianity isn't illegal. So it is tough for us to completely mirror or completely emulate, but I yes. think um, good hermeneutic, good exposition, good teaching, and good community can uh, can mine from it. Okay, what are the things and maybe the practices that we've we've lost a little bit? And I, you know, I'm a little predictable in this regard, but I'm always drawn to um, their devotion to prayer, mm. uh, how they held everything in common. No one, no one in their in their midst had a need. There was a uh, a, a really sort of like beautiful, messy, sort of like almost tangled sense of like, man, we're we're just all in this together. Yeah. And I love that, you know, the scripture does re- record like, yeah, that did lead to some complications. Some people felt left out. Yep. So they actually, you know, you can see like the beginnings of infrastructures kind of being built. But uh, this particular article um, lists three reasons Christianity exploded. And the first says Christians were called into a unique social project that both offended and attracted people. Mm. It was talking about just some of the many different ways that I think uh, we forget that Christians, um, in a lot of ways, they were known by their radical generosity. Yeah. You know, there's a number of histor- a number of people who were not Team Jesus at all that uh, recorded things, saying some pretty awful things about Christians, but then right. also saying, "Look at how they care not only for for their poor, but our poor as well." Yep, yep. Like people that were not looking to further that cause at all still have these moments of reflection stepping back saying, well, that's hard to argue with. Like they see, they just see everything they have as a gift and they just love people of all shapes and sizes, even people that are known enemies. They still love them. They still care for them. They still um, give them medical treatment and food. Like I just think uh, that's a really unique and often I think forgotten component of the early church. It's so powerful. You and I have shared the story before of like, uh, the Roman emperor who's like, we want, we need to get rid of these Christians, but they're doing a better job, uh, 
caring for our sick, feeding right. our poor, right. all the way down to the people you know who are lepers. They're like they're still loving on them, and he's like, we got to do a better job. And so there was this radical, um, just caring for people and the social justice element of that early church that I think we need to embrace again. Absolutely. Number two, he lists uh, Christianity offered a direct, personal love relationship with the Creator God, um, which would have been, I mean, an absolutely um, offensive notion. For a lot of people, and I think part of what I find so fascinating is the, the more that I understand about you know the, the Jewish systems of religiosity, it makes sense to me that they'd be upset that uh, you know they've committed themselves to pious behavior, and then a bunch of fishermen come along and are like, "No, nope, it's grace." Like, <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes you know the religious elite get a bum rap, but I think think about an entire life system built around the uh, a behavior of a certain kind, yes, and then a, and then a bunch of nobodies in that culture are like, "Nope." You kind of you missed you missed the point. This is what it actually is. Yep. Like that that in so many ways, I think was uh, was rattling to a lot of the infrastructures of the time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I love the third one here that it offered an assurance of eternal life that people didn't have that assurance. Like you said, uh, there was a very impersonal God, and they didn't know uh, where the salvation was through human efforts. So you never quite knew if you were getting it. And then, like you said, the fishermen and the tax collectors come along, right. the disciples, and they go, "Oh no, no, no! That's that's through Jesus. Yeah, that's right. good news." And, buddy, I think that most of our people in our culture now are like, I don't know what brings eternal life. Yeah. I don't know where that comes from, and I think we can take that from the early church. Well, and part of what Keller says here, too, is that one of the things that made Christianity so attractive was how different it was. Yes. And we've talked on previous shows about how sometimes in my uh, in my weakest moments, I don't want to be different. Yep. I don't want to stand out at the party. I don't want to stand out at the gathering. I think sometimes the uniqueness of Christianity, we can even know in our heads we're called to be a peculiar people, but yes. the, the temptation or like self-consciousness sometimes is like, yeah, I just want to fit in. I just want to go with the flow. I don't yeah. want to be the pastor at this party right now. <laughs> that can some, That's sometimes so convicting, but he, his, his thesis kind of this whole story is that part of the main attraction of the early church is that it stood against the flow right. in so many ways of what culture sort of just accepted. And, uh, and that is, uh, his, and his, he's making a case is a lot of the reason why it grew so explosively. It is, and that makes us think about our current Christian culture right now. Does it look different than regular culture? Yeah. Uh, and I, in so many ways, it doesn't. Yeah. And that's that's convicting to me as a pastor. It's also convicting to me just as a follower of Jesus yeah. that this early church people were so different that people could reject them outright because they were so different, yep. or they could be drawn to their difference, but it was it was impossible to look at them and not be like, well, there's something different about them. And, yeah. and that's not the case off too often with the church today. Kind of just the list he gives right here. He says, if Christians today were also famous for and marked by chastity, generosity, and justice, multi-ethnicity, and peacemaking, would it not be compelling to many? Yeah. And I look at that list right there and I think, man, I, I need to be doing better in, in all of those areas. And I think, man, if those are the things that the church was marked by, man, those those absolutely are worth emulating. And you and I both as pastors would also admit Sometimes easier said than done. Easier said than done. You know, done. another weekend passes, and you had a bunch of board meetings, and you answered some emails. You're like, man, I don't, I don't know that my life was marked by generosity and justice and mm-hmm. peacemaking. Like, I don't just want our churches to look like that. I want our lives to look like that. Yes. And I think, at the very least, I'm, I'm convicted by this yeah, article. Yeah, I love to bring these things up for people because I feel like anything that convicts us is probably going to convict some other people yeah. out there. So. We would love to hear back from you. You're listening to The Common Good. We'd love for you to call in and talk to us about this a little bit. You can do so at 
94. Well, coming up next, we're really excited to spit, sit down and spend some time with Dallas Jenkins. Dallas Jenkins has worked in Hollywood for nearly two decades, creating all sorts of different films. Ian, I know you've been excited for this one. We're going to have a little chat with Absolutely. Dallas. That's what's coming up next. Uh, this is The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. This is The Common Good with Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. AM 1160. Coming up next on The Common Good, we're going to spend some time talking to Dallas Jenkins. We're very excited to do that. But first, we don't want you to panic, but this Friday, March 1st, is your last chance to enter the PowerPoint Ministries contest at 1160hope.com slash contest. It's your final opportunity for the exclusive two free audio downloads from Pastor Jack Graham and the shot at winning the Amazon Echo Plus smart speaker. Don't forget... Uh, this contest ends on March 1st, so hurry over to 1160hope.com slash contest now to register. AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always with Ian Simpkins. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show or online at 1160hope.com. And you could always call us at 312-660-2594. Ian, I'm really excited for our next guest here in studio. Same. Uh, we are joined by Dallas Jenkins. And so let me give you Dallas's background a little bit. Dallas <laughs> has worked in Hollywood for nearly two decades, creating films for Warner Brothers, Lionsgate, Hallmark Channel, Pure Flix, and Universal. Uh, he's the son of Christian author Jerry Jenkins, but his passion for sharing unique, inspiring, and unexpected stories of faith has delighted audiences around the world. So creating free feature films like Midnight Clear or What If... And it goes on and on and on. I keep going, man, for nine minutes. So thanks for joining us today. Well, I'm just hearing for the first time that I've been delighting audiences <laughs> around the world. So We like to butter up our guests a little bit. Yeah, I'm just really thinking exciting. of you introducing yourself like that in real life. Hi, I delight audiences <laughs> to Alice Jenkins. Good to see you. What do you do for a living? <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> I delight audiences I mean, around look, the world. Look, look at me. I know. <laughs> how, how, why do you even ask? Yeah. <laughs> well, Dallas, we, we are very excited that you're here with us. And we wanted to talk about... Uh, this kind of intersection of the church and media and how that plays in the face. So I'm just more curious, your background, where does this passion for media, uh, where does it come from? Why don't you give us your story a little bit? Yeah, it's really interesting uh, because my father, who's the author of the Left Behind books and mm -hmm. has been telling stories his whole life, I think I inherited this, the storytelling gene from mm -hmm. him, but I was always really passionate about movies and TV early on. I mean, I was a, an athlete primarily, and I was into broadcasting and whatnot, but when my dad introduced me to movies somewhere around like my probably my freshman year of high school, I saw the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest on TV. Oh, um, yeah. And it changed my life. Yes. Like, I was like, whatever that is. <laughs> I want to do that. Yeah, whatever, you know, if, if I can make projects that arouse the same kind of emotion in others mm. that that movie did for me, I think I could really impact the world. And I always had a passion for doing it uh, from a biblical perspective, mm -hmm. from a Christian perspective. Um, but I, growing up, back when I was, I mean, I'm 43 now, so this would have been, you know, back in the, you know, in the 80s and 90s. 
uh, the church, the relationship between the church and Hollywood was extraordinarily <laughs> negative. <laughs> right. Yes. Anytime right. you heard about the relationship between church and Hollywood, it was in the form of a, of a boycott. Mm. And I grew up in a pretty conservative home. You know, uh, uh, I went to a, a pretty strict school. I mean, I was I had a pretty fundamentalist upbringing. Mm. But my dad was always a movie buff, and so he would introduce me to some of these great movies, The Godfather, One Full of Cuckoo's Nest. Wow. Yes. And a Bonnie and Clyde, and yes, and uh, so that started to shift my my passions, and then it was around 2005. I'd been out in Hollywood for about five years, and my whole thing was, and you'll, you've probably heard this a lot. Um, I'm not a I'm not a Christian filmmaker. I'm a filmmaker who happens to be a Christian. Right, fascinating. And it's considered to be cool to like kind of reject the church, yeah. mm. to reject Christian films because most of them aren't very good. And I had l- known that growing up. I was like, why, why is why are faith-based films and, and television shows so much lower on this quality yeah, scale yeah, right. than mainstream stuff? And, and uh, you know, so I, I just thought that's a bummer, but I figured there couldn't be a relationship, a strong relationship between the church and, and uh, media and mm. what I wanted to do. So mm. I was out in L.A., but while I was mowing the lawn one day, the Lord... Uh, really pressed on my heart, which doesn't usually happen when I'm mowing the lawn. <laughs> I love mowing the lawn. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but I, I, I've had just, you know, a couple times in my life where I've really felt like, whether you want to call it the Lord's voice or not, yeah. uh, I felt just very, very clearly, I want you to make movies for my people. Wow. Um, and I don't want you to apologize for that. I wow. don't want you to be the, the, the hip guy trying to outsmart the audience and I'm mm. trying to slip in a message, but I don't want to make it on the nose. Right. I don't want to offend anybody and right. all this stuff. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not going to worry about that anymore. And so I, I really turned towards making projects that were explicitly Christian for, from my worldview. Wow. And what I felt was if I can make them well, if I can make them as good as, you know, main, the kind of mainstream stuff that yeah. I like, then that can be its own disruptive uh, perspective. Yeah. You know? Right. That, that can allow it to stand out. Now, it took me a long time, and I, I'm still growing as a filmmaker. I'm not a great filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a good filmmaker, but I'm not a great one. Mm. I've, I've made some films that I'm proud of, but I'm still learning every day. Uh, but what's, uh, what's interesting is in 2010, I got a call from a man who's been in the news lately, yeah. James McDonald, mm. uh, and said, you know, why don't you come back to the Chicago area, which is where I grew up, and make movies and uh, run the media program here at our church. Wow. And so from 2010 to 2018, I worked at Harvest, and that's actually where I made a feature film called The Resurrection of Gavin Stone that was a partnership right. between Harvest Bible Chapel oh, yeah. and WWE, yes, the wrestling company, that's right. yeah, and yeah. Blumhouse uh, Entertainment, yes. which is the horror film company that did you know, Sinister and, right. and uh, Insidious and all these stuff. The horror film company, wrestling company, and a church <laughs> in Elgin, Illinois, combined to make The Resurrection of Gavin Stone, which oh, was man. an explicitly Christian film that was right. set in the church. So. It was actually the failure of that movie. The movie was very disappointing at the box office, mm. and I was left kind of in this spot of, I don't even know what my future holds. Right. Uh, and around that same time is so close to the same time that I left Harvest for all of the, the reasons that you know, you're hearing about in the news now. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, but right before I left, I made a short film for Harvest Christmas Eve service called The Shepherd. That's yeah. what it was called at the time. And it was a short film about the birth of Christ from the perspective of the shepherds. Mm. And when I was doing that, again, I had another one of those moments of, I really want to keep doing this, is telling the stories of Christ from a yeah. different perspective. Mm. And that led us to, and I know we're, That's uh, fine. this has been a long nope. story, but no, it's great. It's great. But yeah. that, led a, that led me to have this idea of a multi-season show about the life of Christ. 
There's been movies, there's been miniseries, but there's never actually been a multi-season show that you can binge watch right. and really dive into the characters. And I'd been doing these short films and vignettes for Harvest for several years, and they'd always gone over really well, and I always loved it when I did it. Mm. And I felt like I was kind of born for this. And so, long story short, that idea got in the hands of VidAngel, which is a, a streaming service that does fil- primarily filtering, but wanted to get into original series. They loved the idea, and they said, we believe that if you put this special short film out on Facebook, yeah, we could raise the millions of dollars through crowdfunding for this show. And oh, they said that to you. That yeah. was their, no was their idea. I, oh, gosh, I would never come up with an idea <laughs> like that. I'm too busy delighting audiences around the world. <laughs> but I was like, that, I, I just, I, I was, at first I was excited when they said they loved the idea. Then I was disappointed and depressed when they said they wanted to do it through crowdfunding. Right. Because I think right. crowdfunding never works. It's yeah. always for small projects. And uh, long story short, again, we, uh, we ended up, shattering the all-time crowdfunding record for, for media and television and have raised almost $11 million. Ooh. We filmed the first four episodes, uh, which are coming out here soon, and uh, the next four are going into production soon. So it's been, it's been quite an amazing ride over the last couple of years. So just so we're clear, it's the number one crowdfunded film Me- of all time. Me- media project, yeah. Of all film, time. Film or TV of all time. And you yeah. said it's not, I mean... He's not going to brag here, Ian, but you looked it up. It's not even close. It's not, right. The previous record was, I think, 5.7 yeah, mil. Is that right? Yeah. Are we, what, like a, like a decimal or two over 5.7? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, we're a few. But yeah, 16, <laughs> but, but it's been really cool because it's 16,000 awesome. investors. And the, the difference wow. between this and other projects is it's not a donation. Hmm. So it's actually an investment. So we believe hmm. that the investors should benefit if the show benefits. Yes. If the show succeeds, they succeed. And so we had over 16,000 people invest everywhere from, $100 to $200,000. Wow. Um, and so, uh, you know, I t- we, we take that very seriously. We want to protect uh, their investment. Uh, and, and so what's ironic about that is that I've al- I was already kind of in the habit of doing that. Mm. I've always been protective of investors' money, but especially working at a church right. where the finances are coming from tithing. Um, you know, even when we would do these short films for Christmas Eve and whatnot, I always felt a very, just a heavy weight to make sure that, yes. especially when we're telling the stories of Christ, right. that we're protective not only of the spiritual impact this can have, but any financial impact that this can have and make you make sure that it's used wisely. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. Well, you're listening uh, here on The Common Good to Dallas Jenkins. And man, that was an awesome story. And I'm thankful Dallas is going to stay with us for another segment. So coming up next, Ian and I are going to continue this conversation with Dallas Jenkins. You're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. This is The Common Good with Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, as always, joined by Ian Simpkins. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can find old shows online at 1160Hope.com. Dot com. Well, we're delighted to be joined for a second segment here. Delighted. You're delighting this audience right delighted. now. <laughs> Not only is he delighting audiences worldwide, but delighting us as well. This is Dallas Jenkins is joining us. Uh, and before the break, Dallas was telling us about his uh, new show, The Chosen, which uh, was crowdfunded and is raising all sorts of crazy money and uh, really a lot of good momentum behind it. So we want you to be able to tell us about that. So why don't you tell us uh, what is the hope uh, behind The Chosen? Well, again, The Chosen is a multi-season show. Uh, it was it came from the short film that I did for my church's Christmas Eve service mm-hmm. on this Bible chapel here in the Chicago area. And uh, what came out of that was while I was watching all of these shows, I you know I love watch binge watching stuff with my yeah, wife, and right. you're watching stuff like Breaking Bad and whatnot, and going, 
you know, all these shows allow you to really dive into the characters right, in yeah. a way that a movie can't right, do. Right, totally. And I've grown up on Jesus films. I've seen all mm. the Jesus movies and miniseries. And one of the things that I always think they suffered from was how fast they have to move. They totally. kind of go from miracle to miracle. <laughs> Jesus is the main character. So that presents two problems. Number one, you have a main character who's perfect. Right. So it's kind of hard for the audience to identify with <laughs> right. the sinless son of God. And then two, when you're going from miracle to miracle and big moment to big moment and Bible verse to Bible verse, you don't get a chance to really connect with and, and, and dig into the characters that he's actually encountering. And right. So, for example, the short film that we did for the, based on the, uh, on the birth of Christ from the perspective of the shepherds, which is out on Facebook and it was shown in Christmas Eve services and whatnot, we showed the, that day. What were the shepherds' life like mm. that day? Oh, wow. Mm. And what led up to that? So there's a lot of historical research, biblical research to, to figure this out. And then leading up to the moment when they encounter the Christ child made that encounter infinitely more powerful. Right. Because right. you're seeing it through their eyes. And so our, our perspective on this show is we intend that if the audience can see and encounter Jesus through the eyes of those who actually met him, yeah. they can be impacted in mm. the same way that those people were. That's but that's kind of where we're bringing it to. And so the show really digs into the minutia of yes. their lives, the historical background, mm-hmm. the backstory of these characters. Some of it's artistic imagination where we're coming up with some of what their life might have been like and maybe some storylines that led up to their encounter with Christ. But it comes from, of course, a, a faithful adaptation of cool. Scripture. Well, that's so you yeah, use the phrase artistic imagination. I'm like really fascinated by that because it's not just movies. It's also sermons sometimes. Jesus is sort of this one-dimensional, right? He's always wearing like a, a bathrobe with Vidal assumed hair and he just floats everywhere. And then he... Is that not accurate? That's not the same church I went to. But, but you're right. You don't get to dive into the minutia of the, of the humanity of Jesus. Not only the humanity of Jesus, but the people that lived life with him. And uh, what, what's that like for you? Because you, you care about good scholarship, right? So right. you're trying to get, get into the mindset and the culture, but also having to make some decisions. Like, all right, well, we're going to write some dialogue here that we don't have right. in the Bible. What's, the, what's that process like, and has it, has it been difficult to do that? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a good question. I mean, as I mentioned, I, I was working at Harvest Bible Chapel for eight years. And, right. and uh, as, as we know in the news, you know, there's been some some unfortunate things that have come out about it and it wasn't always the greatest experience however Mm. one thing that i will always say for during my time at harvest was i grew closer to the word in my time at harvest than Mm. any other time in my life and Mm. james mcdonald is one of the great bible preachers uh that i've ever heard and so at our church when i was making these these short films and vignettes about the life of christ we came from the perspective of look the bible is the word of god we're not messing with it yeah however i got a good uh, not only did I get a great Bible education, but I got good practice in what do we do when we're telling a story yes. that uh, where that includes things that the Bible didn't see fit to talk about. Totally. And all pastors do this. I'm guessing that when you guys tell stories about Jesus or Biblical, you'll say, so you got a picture of the scene. Yes. Well, yes, Jesus right. walks in, he yes. says hi. And no one sits there and says, wait, wait a minute. The Bible doesn't say Jesus said hi, so you're not allowed to add to Scripture. Right, so, right. We agree that we're not supposed to add to Scripture. But the show isn't scripture. Right. Scripture is scripture. Yep. The Bible is the Bible. Mm. We're not claiming that when we imagine what the, the, the shepherds, for example, were doing the morning of their encounter with Christ, or in the case of this show where we dig into the life of Simon Peter, Nicodemus. I mean, we're really exploring. So I'll just use Nicodemus as an example to yeah. answer your question. So Nicodemus is someone who we know from scripture. Uh, when he encountered Christ the first time, he believed he was the Messiah. Mm. We also know from biblical and historical research that that would have made him 
on the outs with his fellow Pharisees. Right, no which kidding. Which is why he met with Jesus in secret. Oh, interesting. So we found him to be a really fascinating character. He's got one foot in this whole Messiah train mm. that is taking off, while the other foot is in this religious dogma system that he's a very much a part of, one of the key teachers of Israel. Right. Who, who a group of people who do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, who actually right. believe he's the enemy yes. of, the Jewish, of the Jewish faith. So we thought that is a fascinating character to follow. And then we also know, as if you read uh, the Gospels, that little emergences of Nicodemus, that's probably not the right way to put it, but we, <laughs> see, we see him emerge at different times, and he's mm-hmm. still a member of this group. Mm-hmm. He's almost acting like a double agent. Oh, interesting. Until Jesus dies, in which clearly Nicodemus feels guilty mm. and gives essentially tens of thousands of dollars worth of spices and perfumes to help participate in the barrel, yeah. uh, the, the burial which I consider to be somewhat of a guilt offering in his case. So we go, working our way backwards, what led Nicodemus to the point where he believed Jesus was the Messiah, even though it caused him to, to be put in an awkward position and ultimately not to give up his position. He right. stayed with it. So when we first meet Nicodemus in the show, The Chosen, this is before he's met Jesus, we want to explore what he's up against and what he's hearing about Jesus that makes him question whether or not he's the Messiah. Those things aren't in Scripture, right. but they come from a person in myself who's a believer that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God, yeah. who comes from that perspective. And so we, we, I think we, we believe audiences will find the show very Bible faithful, mm. while at the same time oh, introducing good. artistic imagination that comes through the lens of biblical and historical research. That's yeah. fantastic. So uh, kind of broadening out a little bit, in a couple minutes we have left, you've talked about the intersection of church and media, Christians and the media, and like how it, when we were growing up, Hollywood's bad, everything's bad about it. What do you think the future looks like? For are there, Do you see a wave of more Christian filmmakers and more more people doing what you're doing? Is that the way you see the tide going? Absolutely. I mean, I think if you looked at the state of, of faith-based filmmaking right now and compared it to even five years ago, mm. you'd, you'd see significant improvements, not only in quality, but in in box office success. Um, Hollywood has varying degrees of interest in it. Like like Mm. I mentioned, when I talked about my film, the resurrection of Gavin stone, when I was partnering with, you know, world wrestling entertainment to (laughs) to finance it and Blumhouse entertainment to produce it and this church (laughs) in Elgin to produce it. um, They were passionate about doing multiple movies until the resurrection of Gavin stone failed at the box office. No Uh, kidding. So then they said, well, that, you know, that's it for me. Yeah, never know. mind. That was interesting. Yeah. We'll go back to wrestling, and horror, <laughs> wrestling projects, and horror films. Um, so, which, but, but that doesn't change what, of course, the church is still interested in doing. And I think yes. the church has seen the light in many ways about recognizing that this is the sight and sound generation, and we we don't want to be on the sidelines. Right. Um, that's good. We need to use these tools to spread the word, much like the Christians of old used publishing tools. Yeah. To right. We need to use media tools, and so. Uh, it's getting a lot better. I know, just speaking for myself, I am significantly better as a filmmaker than I was 10 years ago. Right. I got off to a late start because, again, growing up in the church, you're mm. not often encouraged to do this for a living. Yeah. But now we're seeing a change in that. And so even just locally here, for example, Judson is a is a college mm. that has a fil- strong film program. Yep. And I think Christian colleges are seeing that as a strong uh, inducement for, for youth to use media to to change the world. That's outstanding. Okay, so what I'm hearing you say is your next project's going to be a horror film. Is that, is that <laughs> a horror film about wrestlers. Wrestler slash, yeah. Yeah, horror slash wrestling film. It's going to delight the world. Yeah. Yes, yes. It is going <laughs> to delight obviously, around the delight world, audiences. you said in my bio. Well, like in the minute that we have left, like what encouragement would you give to both artists in the church and also church leaders? Because I find that sometimes it's difficult in a church context, whether you consider yourself an artist or not, to actually 
give art the voice that it deserves without it being exploitative, without using it as like, oh, he just needs something to transition between music and preaching. Like, how how can churches better engage with artistry? Well, you know, every church has a varying degree, varying levels of finances to be able to do what right, a right. movie or a short film. All I can tell you is that some of the vignettes that we did that were pretty low budget that we'd use during worship times or yeah. use during Christmas Eve services or whatever were some of the most impactful awesome. moments of our church. And That's it awesome. was universally agreed to. So using it in the worship set, using it for some of your special services, it's worth it. That's awesome. Dallas, thank you so much for joining us. You can find this show at the Chosen. Uh, .tv. That's the chosen .tv. This has been Dallas Jenkins joining us on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. AM 1160. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 60 Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. You always think I yell, don't you? I don't think you yell. You are yelling. <laughs> Every you time I come back from the break, it's you screaming. I'm it's so, so excited, man. We're on the radio. We're on the radio. I like your energy. There you go. That's Ian Simpkins. You're hearing my name is Brian Fromm. I'm the lead pastor at Four Corners Community Church in Darien, Illinois. Ian is the teaching pastor at Community Christian Church, the Yellow Box in Naperville, Illinois. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, online at 1160hope.com. There you can find old shows, and uh, you can... Uh, Podcast us wherever it is you get your podcasts. And as always, you could call us at 312-660-2594. Hey, man, I told you I saw Hamilton last night. Yeah, I'm, I, I got to be honest. I'm a little bit jealous. You got to go. All right. It is. Everyone tells me. It is like nothing I've ever seen. It really is. Like, got to go, got to do it. Yes. Oh, it really is. It was my, I got it for my wife for Christmas, so the two of us went last night. Smart. But can I tell you an embarrassing story? You ready for it? Can't wait. All right. So for the first time last night, I used Spot Hero. You ever use Spot Hero to find parking spots? Yes, sir. Um, because when we went to the Price is Right two weeks ago, my wife and I sound like city people now, right? But like, <laughs> we paid an exorbitant amount of I'm money sure. for parking. So I'm this sure. time I'm like, I'm not going to do that for Hamilton. I get on Spot Hero and I found, I reserved a spot right by the theater in a garage for $19. I'm like, that is awesome. I go home and I'm like, Carrie, my wife, I'm like, this is amazing. I'm the best. Like, I'm just hyping myself. I'm the best. <laughs> uh, we pulled in and there was a sign, daily night special, $17. <laughs> <laughs> that could have gone worse. That's not terrible. I overpaid. <laughs> yeah, $2. That's it, worth it. It was the purpose. I thought we were going to go in and I saved us like half. Right. <laughs> right. You overpaid. So you and, I are, you and I are both pastors, as we were just talking about. And part of that is we want people to be, be able to handle Scripture well. Uh, and we want to handle Scripture well as pastors. We don't want to be na- manipulative with it or any of that. And with that in mind, I came across this really kind of fun article called uh, titled this, Why Has This Verse Replaced John 3.16 as the Most Popular on Social Media? So people are posting memes of verses all the time, or this yeah. is my favorite verse. Well, for the first time, the number one verse is not John 3.16. Oh, my goodness. Do you want to know what it is? Tell me. Because uh, if you said no, then we got a lot of time. That's, to right. <laughs> That's true. That'd be awkward. No. The number one verse now is Jeremiah 29.11. If you don't know Jeremiah 29, 11, it says this, 
for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, uh, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Yeah. Awesome verse, right? Great verse. What are your thoughts that, that it's the number one memed verse on social media right now? Oh, I'm the wrong guy to ask. I think the whole article, the whole point of the article is um, is about biblical interpretation. And I would even say, you, you mentioned like handling scripture. I don't even like that phrase, to be honest. Okay. We're not handling scripture. We're not, you know, it's not like a... A caged cat that we get <laughs> we get to handle. I'm its I'm its handler. Like yeah. we we live in, we breathe, we wrestle with, we sit with. I think I think I think those are the words that I'd love to see us associate with scripture. Um, in conjunction with, st- I think it's still important to study scripture, yep. even to memorize. That's like my you know I'm a cheesy homeschool kid right now, but like I think those things are important. But so I think far too often when we talk about scripture being an owner's manual, right? Yep, yep. Or an instruction booklet. Like I've never been moved to tears from an owner's manual. Like it just flattens what scripture actually is. And I think it has to first start by recognizing that scripture is, you know, the Bible isn't one book. It's a collection of books yep. and it's narratives and love stories and poems and chronicles and genealogies. Like it's messy and complicated. So, you know, when we sort of proof text these, uh, these verses, the, uh, the hopeful part of me says, all right, if it, I mean, if it brings you a, happiness if it brings you uh, some joy and a hard day i think that's okay but then like the the scholar part of my brain yep. gets like a little a little anxious like that's not actually what that verse means you know like one of the things i'll i'll say a lot is that we have to remember that the bible was written for us but was not written to us yes and you know when you talk about like if you look at a different you know look at like a, a hindi text or something like that it's obvious that you can't read it you know like i need someone to interpret that what's harder is with the bible because we have it in english we forget that we also need that culture interpreted. Yes. What's that audience dealing with? What What is the context? What are the, I mean, just baseline stuff is like, what are the verses that, that bookend that? Like I actually made a, a little bit of a, it's not snarky, but it was, it was meant to be thought provoking a, a, a post a couple of weeks ago. And I posted a couple of verses like this. So Revelation 320, <laughs> here I am, I stand at the door and knock. And I said, it's addressing a lukewarm church, not the unsaved. Yeah. Matthew 1820, where two or more are gathered. He says it's dealing with sin in the Christian community. Not, yep. It's not a call to worship. Yep. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, right? Everyone has that needle stitch on a pillow somewhere. <laughs> it's talking about contentment, not physical, professional, or intellectual mastery. Like in the, the passage here, Jeremiah 29.11, it's, it's written to a people in exile. It's yes. not a promise of personal prosperity. So yes. I'm, I, I'm not against to using these verses, allowing these verses to encourage you or challenge you. I just do think it is also important to remember the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. That's really good. And context does matter. That's really good. That's snarky, but that's really good. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I, I, no, I'm totally with you, man, because I think one reason this verse is the number one shared verse now is because people rip it out of context. Right. They take it away. The fact that it's written to Jeremiah and a people in exile saying, right. God, God's like, I'm not going to forget you. And instead, it is a wide open door when taken out of context to the prosperity gospel. Hey, there it is. God said he's going to prosper me. Right. God wants me to be prosperous. In plain print right there. Right there. All of you people <laughs> who say he does it, he does. And and that is so dangerous in our Western kind of American culture because uh-huh. we have a, a view of prosperity that means that's going like, look, God says that he has plans for me. He's going to prosper me. He's got, not going to harm me. I'm going to have a future. Man, I'm going to follow Jesus and everything's going to go well. Right. In my way of thinking, things should go well. <laughs> and man, that is a dangerous theology. Well, and I say all of that having just preached last weekend and quoted Jeremiah. Like yes. I, I'm absolutely talking out of both sides of my mouth right now because – 
I think there's still a ton to learn and be challenged by and be encouraged by. I just think, and we, you know, we, we often use the analogy of glasses, right? We all have worldviews. Mm-hmm. We all have biases. And glasses are things we look through, not at. Mm-hmm. I can often forget that I'm even wearing glasses because I'm not thinking about the lens and the frame. And what I think is important for us to do is to step back and just say, your context or interpretation might not even be wrong, but just realize you have a perspective. Yes. You have a lens you're looking through. And it's not just that context matters. It's that context is best understood in the context of community. Yeah. Like find people who are interested in taking a deeper dive because, you know, so often I think in isolation we can come to some pretty crazy conclusions and without like accountability to say, hey, that's, that's not actually what that means. And you're running this out to, a, to an illogical end that's actually pretty dangerous. Yep. Uh, community and interpretation, I think, need to go hand in hand. And that's, that's often hard to do in a very kind of siloed yes. culture that we often live in. And you should absolutely preach out of Jeremiah. My guess is the, the, the point of one of the great sermon points of Jeremiah is going to be, look, God says he's not going to forget about his people. Right. Even when they're in exile. It's not a promise to make you rich and right. um, take all your problems away. Uh, it is a promise uh, to, uh, to, to be faithful to his promises. And, and the whole memeing and stuff of scripture is great. Like, great. We want people in the word, but, but, but not handling it correctly. And now you're spreading it. Yeah, <laughs> and it's right. a little dangerous. So. Yeah. It, can, it definitely can be dangerous. And I, I think the memeing of scripture can actually also be dangerous. Yes. I think it can make people familiar with proof texting like, Oh yeah, that looks familiar. I'm, <laughs> I recognize that, uh, that verse, but I, I think it has to be far more than recognizing or quoting it's it's allowing the word of god to change us and that means yes. sometimes when we look at context there's some really hard truths that we'd otherwise rather avoid yep. that proof texting affords us the opportunity to just sort of narrow in on a piece that maybe was never meant to be read in isolation it's great man that's great uh have those thoughts next time you see a meme or just when you're studying scripture do the work do the work um, well, this is the common good on AM 1160. Ian, coming up next, we're going to do an interview that you and I are both very excited about. Uh, we're going to talk to Scott Olson. Scott is the president and the CEO of an organization called One Collective Leadership. So that's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. This is The Common Good with Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins on AM 1160. Hope for your life. AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm alongside Ian Simpkins. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Also online at 1160hope.com. You're always welcome to call us to make us laugh, to ask us questions, whatever you want to do at (laughs) 312-660-2594. We're excited to be joined right now by a special guest in studio, uh, Scott Olson is the president and CEO of One Collective. Let me read to you his bio. His passion is that no one would be invisible and that everyone would have access to food, freedom, and forgiveness. In response, Scott's leadership style has been to follow the ministry model of Jesus and not separate mission from compassion. He's also committed to building unity by bringing people together to help the oppressed. And he says he wants One Collective to truly reflect Jesus and his methods of transformation. Scott, thank you so much for coming in and joining us today. Thank you guys. Great yeah. to be here. Really appreciate it, man. So just uh, cards on the table. Scott and I are friends, and the way that we became friends is sort of bizarre. So our mutual friend, Gene Kroom, president of Judson University, kind of out of the blue said, hey, um, Ian, I think you need to hang out with my friend Scott. And I was like, okay, sure. Why? <laughs> I was living in Elgin at the time. I was like, let's do it. 
And uh, I think we both were kind of wondering, okay, why why this recommendation? I walked into your office, and like two and a half hours later, it was like, yep, it, it makes sense. <laughs> I think Gene was right on the money. It was like a blind date. It was, it was nice. It really kind of was. <laughs> we, were, uh, we were actually filling in each other's sentences. By the time <laughs> you knew it was a match. And then we went to a roller rink afterwards and sh- shared a shake with uh, two straws. It was <laughs> That's fabulous. Well, right off the bat, even just like rehearing your bio and what One Collective does, like gets my blood pumping. Like I, I'm reminded again why I love you and your heartbeat. And what you, would you just kind of let our audience know what One Collective is about, why you're passionate about it, the work that you do, ways people can get involved, just in any way that people might better understand what it is that you do. Yeah. Well, I've spent about the last 35 years of my life doing, you know, doing international kind of ministry, and um, for a long time. You know, we started to see this decline in in actual effectiveness of missionary organizations. Mm-hmm. And um, and when I came here 11 years ago, I was given the opportunity to kind of reinvent, um, with the permission of our board, kind of a, a new ministry. And what we did, very simply, was spent the first year just looking at the life of Jesus and mm-hmm. asking the question: yep. if he were if he were like taken over an organization or going to reinvent it, what would it look like? What would it you know, what would it feel like? That's good. So we just kept looking at Jesus and, and his model. And one of the things that I came through, and some people listening might relate to it, is I kind of came through the, the period where the the, uh, the evangelical missionary sending organization really needed to work with the compassion and justice folks. Mm-hmm. But the problem was they didn't really like each other. Right. They didn't work together. And I was caught right in the middle of that. They needed each other to really reflect Christ. Right. But they weren't getting along. Mm. And so they worked, but it just didn't great so um so as we were studying the life of jesus and also being burned out on this this competitive thing right we just kept feeling like if we were going to reinvent ourselves the way to reinvent ourselves is actually to rewind the tape two thousand years look at jesus mm. and try to do the stuff that he did wow. mm. and um so it's been cool so so we talk about our ministry being an integrated ministry that just sort of brings those together and if you truly follow jesus then it's not one or the other and it's not one to get the other. Right. Uh, you don't do a compassionate thing so that you can tell people how to get into heaven. So you good. do it because Jesus loves people. Yes. And he loves us. And if you need water today, he gives you water. Yeah. Totally. You know? So, um, so that's kind of what we do. Yeah. Where do you think that competition comes from? Because we hear that often from we people, do. right? We and do. Yeah. It, I, when the way you just said it there, it's like it doesn't make sense that there's this yeah. competition, but yet we all feel it and have seen it. Where, in your opinion, does that competition come from? Well, let me first say, I think it's getting better. Oh, I good. Mean, in, awesome. In my, in my 35 years of doing this, um, I, I do think it's getting better. I think, you know, again, lay the cards on the table and, and sorry, whoever we might offend. But the <laughs> reality is, I think when organizations stand up to talk about themselves and promote themselves, I think, I think people have a scarcity mentality, mm. and it's about money. Yeah. And so if I'm leading this organization, I'm trying to raise money for my organization, and I don't really want any of our donors getting near anybody else's ministry. Right. right. And it's, it's crap. I mean, it's just not good, <laughs> and, it's, and we need to get to a, something better than that. Yeah. And so part of what we do and what we're passionate about is actually being sort of a catalytic influence in the communities that we work in around the world so our tagline, our mission statement, is that we bring people together to help the oppressed. Mm, so so a great example, if I can just share it. Right yeah, absolutely. please in do. Uzhgorod, Uzhgorod in uh, in Ukraine, there are like because we put a catalyst in there with this philosophy of bringing people together. Mm-hmm. Um, there are now thirty five 
ministries working together wow. under the banner of Transform Ujgarad. Wow. Um, and, and nobody really knows that we were the ones to do that because you want to go in with humility and if you're going to bring people together, you've got to you know, build trust. Yes. But it's powerful because they're working together and everybody can, can tell their people that they're doing this and promote it. But we know that our, our passion, our calling is to create that unity and bring yeah. them together. So why, why do you think that part's so rare? Because we do. We live in a, in a culture that's hyper-obsessed with branding, brand promotion, brand awareness. It's all about my church and my organization is doing something better or unique. And you seem to be of the belief that, man, if, if Jesus sees someone that needs water, we just give them water and we don't make them go through a course first, and we don't have to get the credit even for doing it. I think that's a lot of what really, I think, drew me to you and your organization is that there there is this like really beautiful sense of um, we're just going to be Jesus to people, even if we never get any of the fanfare, maybe even if it's better that we don't. Why why do you think bridge building is so tough, and why why is that particular sentiment and posture uh, of bringing people together for, for really the common good. <laughs> yeah. Like, why is that so rare? Why is that so difficult for organizations and churches to get? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, I think that, um, gosh, why? Mm. I, I think, yeah, I just kind of froze. Ask me again, Ian. Cause I, <laughs> I, actually, when you said common good, you know where my brain went? We just went through a name change, and, and um, what we narrowed it down to one collective. It was also... Uh, the other choice was Common Good International. No Apologies. kidding. Global, yeah. <laughs> that's so that's why when you say Common Good, I got you got them. Well, we were gonna we were gonna I name this show One Collective actually. So it's <laughs> yeah. Well, it's good. It's good that it went that way. <laughs> it worked out well for all of us. I think I think I remember. I bought myself the time. There you go. <laughs> I think that um, I, I read. I don't know if I haven't fact checked this, but I mm. I came across a statistic that said there's like seventy thousand denominations in the U.S. Mm. Wow. wow. Even if there's 50 or 40, that means that we disagree on between 40,000 and 50 and 70,000 things. Yeah. And right. it's the Bible's a big book, yep. and there's lots of places where we debate and you know, totally. fall on different sides of the of the spectrum. But I think when you if, when you really make your focus Jesus, mm. which is which is God walking this planet, mm. when you make your focus Jesus, and you look at the red letters and you you make those maybe the priority of how mm. you're going to live out what you do and how, how you're going to live out in the way that you lead. I think that's where you find this, this passion, this, this, um, this style, this thing, this reason to be unified. That's beautiful. So. I love that answer, man. Well, we're talking to Scott Olson. Thankfully, Scott is going to stick with us for the next segment, so we're excited. That's what's coming up next. But if you want to hear more about the One Collective, you can do so at onecollective.org. That's onecollective.org. You can also follow Scott on Twitter. Let me make sure I get this right, Scott. Is it Scott Olson, CEO? Correct. That's S-O-N, Scott Olson, CEO. We're excited to have Scott Olson joining us here on The Common Good. Coming up next, we'll continue this conversation uh, about um, showing both compassion and evangelism and talking more about what Jesus is doing uh, through people around the world. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. This is The Common Good with Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. AM 1160.
Coming up next on The Common Good, we're going to continue our conversation with Scott Olson, the president and CEO of One Collective. We're going to talk about leadership, and we're going to talk about jazz. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good. But first, the weather outside might feel like winter, but if you have school-age kids, you should be thinking about back-to-school season, and specifically, you should be thinking about where you will be sending your kids to school this fall. If you've always felt like you didn't really have a choice to send your kids to a private Christian school because of the cost, then listen up. We want to tell you about the HalfPriceSchools.com. At HalfPriceSchools.com, you can find local private Christian schools from all over Chicagoland that are offering vouchers for a full year of tuition at half the price with no catch. Find a Christian school near you, purchase the tuition voucher, and prepare to send your child off to school this fall. It's that simple. HalfPriceSchools.com has schools located all across Chicagoland, including Westminster Christian School in Elgin, Kingswood Academy in Darien, and Covenant Christian School in Aurora. Make private Christian school a real option for your family for the first time this year, but don't wait. Many of these vouchers will sell out. Visit HalfPriceSchools.com today. That's HalfPriceSchools.com. AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. I'm just going to let this go a little bit. I'm okay with that. All right. That's enough right there. I mean, it's, no, it's no John Coltrane. There you go. <laughs> Nobody's John Coltrane. My name is Brian Fromm, joined by Ian Simpkins again. And there, uh, that other voice you hear is Scott Olson. Scott is joining us for another segment. He is the president and CEO of One Collective. Uh, and so we've been talking about his organization uh, and also... Uh, just kind of bigger scale, kind of what's compassion and evangelism and the mission of Jesus look like in our culture and in this world today? Well, and what people may not know about Scott, though, is that you're also a musician, a jazz musician in particular. And I think that that fateful day that we first met, uh, we had both sort of shared that in common. You're a much better musician than I am. But this idea, though, that for you, jazz and music has a lot to do with leadership and i thought oh i already know i'm gonna like this guy Can you just talk a little bit about that jazz and leadership and the intersection of the two there yep uh just pull the mic away when you want me to stop it's just one of my favorite topics I'll, same here all so, jazz all jazz people do this right just keep riffing just keep that's going. right it's all about riffing i i uh about i don't know how many years ago i wrote for uh an article that t- turned into a three-part series for mm. uh um Leadership Journal, mm. and um, it it was it was called Lead Like Jazz, mm. and um, I'm a- actually hoping this year to start a blog that I call Lead Like Jazz. Please do. But it, it really, um, um, or a podcast, maybe that's cooler. Eh? <laughs> Is it? I don't know. It's cool. Know. I don't. Know. <laughs> you know, it's cool. A radio show. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I'm going to start a radio show called Lead Like Jazz. Um, but the concept that that we, I, I grew up playing both classical music and jazz. Mm. And in classical music, you know, the interesting thing is, um, and, and we'll use these as a metaphor to kind of get into the leadership area, but classical music, you know, the, the musicians come together. They're very, very talented. Right. They can sight read. They can play every note. Right. And their pay is really determined by how well they can be perfect. That's right. Mm. But they're writing everybody. I mean, they're playing everybody else's song. So Mozart writes it. The mm. conductor picks it, mm. but those musicians have very little of their own creativity that they can put into that because mm. it's written out. Right in the jazz world, when when we get together to play, often we don't even know what the next song's going to be, and we don't <laughs> no. we don't have we don't have music in front of us. Right, but the reality is, you can still get a standing ovation, mm. but but not 
you know, play those exact notes. Right. So, so if you think about, you know, leadership theory, you know, we, we read a book, we go to a seminar, we go to a conference, and we're told if we do these, these 10 principles, yeah. um, then we'll, we will be able to lead better. Right. That, that's almost like, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, um, because those 10 principles may be really good and they might really work. Sure. And they have helped a lot of people. But what do you do when you get out there and you try them and they don't actually work right. um, and, and you're stuck? So I have this idea of putting jazz leadership in your tool belt so you mm. carry that around with you. And, and it's the idea. Jazz leadership to me is um, it's, it's actually what we're doing in here right now. Mm. None of this stuff that these people are hearing is scripted. Right? right, right. We just came in with some thoughts and ideas and we're looking each other in the eyes. Yep. Mm. We're reading each other. We're nodding our heads. Yep. You're shaking your head, no, <laughs> Scott, don't do that. Um, we, our voices go up, or, and, and that's right. the same thing happens in a small jazz combo. Mm. And, um, and so it's just, a, it's just another way of doing leadership. Uh, my dentist is a, is a great guy out in Elgin, Dr. Dean Lotting. And um, I actually, uh, in, in the art, one of my articles, I said, um, initially I said, I don't want my dentist playing jazz in my mouth. Right, you know, I want right. classical. You know, yes, good, good oh, that's back. awesome. But it's interesting. He invited me to come in a few times to do some seminars for his, his team. He's got a big staff out there. Mm. And, um, and it was, it's fascinating. Every time I go in for an appointment, somebody will say, hey, I played jazz yesterday. Because no what do you do when you get a grumpy patient? What do you do when, yeah. when the power goes out? What do you do when you know, something didn't go quite right? Yeah. Um, so to be able to have jazz in your, in your back leadership pocket is, is kind of a – Kind of a neat thing. I think that's great. What does that look like for your leadership at One Collective? Like how how would uh, how does this love of jazz affect now how you lead this organization? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. I I think when people ask me about it, I often say, you know, I have I have a Bible college degree. Yep. Um, I have a master's that was primarily focused in leadership, you know, good leadership theory. Mm. But when people ask me what's the number one thing that helped me as a leader, I'll say my career in jazz music. Mm. Um, because for, for me, I work in a global organization uh, that, that's in about 60 countries around the world. And, I mean, you've got culture, you've got language, you've got local history, you've got all these things. And so when you, when you, when you arrive on a field or you start to, to work with the people, you don't know the language perfectly. You don't mm. know the culture perfectly. So being able to read what's going on and adapt, it, it's pretty significant. So I, what I do is I try to, uh, I try to hire people around me. I have the world's greatest team. They're, they're better leaders than me in mm. so many mm. ways. Mm. Um, a lot of them are really good with details. Um, I don't feel like I have to be good with details. I feel like I have to be self-aware yep. as a leader and then bring the right people around me that are good at the things I'm not so good at. Mm. So I'm not much of a detail guy. Mm. I, I was not as successful in classical music because uh, it was a lot like math. Right, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And, and uh, but, but, you know, help me or, you know, let my English teacher assign me the task of writing a poem. Yeah, mm. oh, I, you're there. I, I dig that. Yeah. So, so it just kind of clicked for me. So, in the previous segment, we were talking about your love for collaborating with mm-hmm. other entities, other ministries, other people groups, and in music theory, particularly jazz music theory, too. Like collaboration is is key, right? I had a music yeah. teacher when we were younger. You know, I'm a drummer, and he said, "Okay, if there's five people in the band and you're all playing at 100, percent that's just a wall of noise. No one wants mm. to listen to that. You you exactly. have to." Read the room, read your fellow musicians, particularly in jazz too, know when to be on and when to be off. And you have this, not just desire, but this capacity to bring people together. Like in the church world, we use words like unity, but like you're collaborate, you're like a curator of skill and passion. And 
I think that's I think that's brilliant. And I think so you you run this it's a large organization and I think historically we just assume like, oh, a large organization, he's probably this type of person. Right. And we were we were talking during the break a little bit. Sometimes we create this dichotomy, you're like either a leader or you're an artist. And I don't think we I don't I don't know what I always hear it said that starkly, but why do you think that there's this dichotomy between like quote unquote leadership, good leadership and like artistry? Why why are they sometimes seemingly at odds? I don't know. I think the I think maybe sometimes the creatives uh, aren't taken seriously as mm-hmm. as uh, you know detailed thinkers, right? And so we want we want high powered CEOs that mm. are dominant and strong and forceful mm. and Type A and all that. And I've got some of that in me, um, but but I have this creative side too, and this right. very much this collaborative thing that you're talking about. Mm. And um, so I think I think the stereotype was was that, but I, I'm not sure that's the best model. Yeah, right. I think. Um, I, I really like my pedigree. I like my, my Bible college stuff. I like my master's stuff. Yes. It focuses on classical leadership. But I really like the jazz part of who I am. And I try to bring that to everything I do. I think that's brilliant. So your organization, One Collective, uh, if someone's out there and they're like, you know what, I, I would love to get involved, uh, whether it be a church or an individual, what are the opportunities through One Collective that somebody could uh, get involved and uh, kind of get together with you guys? Well, we need all kinds of people uh, in lots of different communities around the world Love it. Um, of all types. Mm. But I, I would say the, the people that are significantly needed right now are, are these, this kind of leader mm. we're talking about, that collaborative kind of leader that yeah. can bring people together in those communities. And so when I'm talking about it, I usually try to describe it as, as a, uh, a person who thinks like a general contractor. Mm. You know, when I moved here, um, and I moved here in 2008. It was a bad economy. Yep. We we built a house instead of bought a house instead of uh, you know buying an existing home. Right. And a general, I would not have a clue how to build a house, but a general <laughs> contractor mm. uh, knew how to get the right people and how to bring them together, which again is our tagline: we bring people together. I love that. So if somebody is out there listening and they think their mind works as a general co- contractor, yeah. And you just perked up when I said John Cronenberg. <laughs> should call me, right? Now. Yeah, yeah. Because they're 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 not they're not easy to find. I believe it. Yeah. So, well, Scott, thank you so much for yeah. joining us. This has been great. We're, thank you guys. It's been great to meet you again, Scott uh, Olson is the president and CEO of One Collective. Uh, you can find out more about One Collective at onecollective.org. That's onecollective.org. You can also follow Scott at on Twitter at Scott Olson. CEO. Scott, thank you for joining Thanks, us. Thanks, Thanks, guys. This that was awesome. excellent. You're doing a great job. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you. Well, coming up next, uh, he won't think we're doing a great job if he stays for the next part because <laughs> we always end the show by just doing some crazy stories, some lighthearted stories that we found on the internet. So we're going to do that. That's what's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. This is The Common Good with Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins on AM 1160. Hope for your life. AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm alongside Ian Simpkins. Man, it's been a fun day. Dallas Jenkins and Scott Olson. No kidding, man. Just the two of them. Uh, that was, that's that been good. They might be taking our jobs. I know. I know. <laughs> um, but I bet you they can't do just the internet insanity that we're going about to get into here. Well, that's fair. <laughs> if, we'll you've, if you've been with us for any time over the last six weeks, we like to end every show by just going onto the internet and going, hey, these, the internet never fails us. And there's just crazy stories, funny stories, people's stupidity and carelessness never 
Uh, if it was just Florida, we could go with just Florida. <laughs> we should name this segment primarily Florida. I, say, you, I feel like you have a vendetta against Florida. It's starting to feel personal. I'm going there in like a month. I'm super excited. But <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so I'm going to start in South Carolina. Here we go. Uh, headline reads, get out of this cold. Man shuts down Girl Scout table. Well, that sounds sad, right? Man yeah. shuts down Girl Scout table by buying cookies. All of them. A kind stranger cleaned out a Girl Scout troop's cookie supply late last week so that the girls could get out of the cold weather and go home. That's really nice. That's a feel good. I like it. The lady, uh, the mom shared a photo of the man and two members of the troop posing next to their cookie sales table outside the grocery store. The photo was accompanied by a post saying he first bought seven boxes of cookies with $40 and then told the girls to keep the change before returning. You want to know how much she spent? Five hundred and forty dollars. love it. On the rest of the cookies. That's awesome. That's a feel good. Here's my question: How cold could it have been in South Carolina? Though? <laughs> I mean, here in Chicago, I'm sure that would have been like shorts. There weather. we go. There goes the uh, signature no Brian Fromm <laughs> sympathy. Right, here's one out of Texas. Man plans to spend retirement at the Holiday Inn because it's cheaper. I love that. So he kind of breaks it down. Uh, he said the average cost of nursing home care is about 188 dollars a day. Long-term stay with a senior citizen discount at Holiday Inn, on the other hand, is fifty nine twenty three per day. In quotes, it says that leaves $128 a day for lunch and dinner in any restaurant we want or room service, laundry, gratitudes, and special TV movies. It reminds me, too, I actually just discovered this was a thing. Some people will also do this with cruises. They'll just book back-to-back-to-back-to-back cruises instead of no, going to right. retirement because it's actually cheaper to just pay for the cruise tickets. That's cool. Isn't that fascinating? But I think if you have to go to a nurse, like he's doing it nursing home or or like ret- or a hotel. I think if you need a nursing home, probably by yourself at a hotel is no good. But hey, that's a good point. Touche. But that's cool. I've often wondered that, like those extended stays. Or right. Like, I love hotels. You get a pool. They make your bed for you. You got you got a waffle downstairs nah. in the lobby when you wake up. I'm an Airbnb guy myself, man. Oh, my kids, maybe your kids when they're older, when we get hotels for any sort of trip. Like, we're going to be driving to Florida in another month, and they'll ask us if we stay at a hotel over, overnight. Uh, free waffles? Free waffles? It's all they want to know. And it's just like that fake batter into, like, the press. But they love them and because you make them yourself. So I was like, you got a free waffle? Say, do you not have a waffle maker at home? It's just different. In you got to you gotta, you gotta splurge, man. Just get a waffle maker. Get a waffle maker. <laughs> now I feel guilty. I haven't given my kids a waffle maker. but <laughs> Wisconsin. Some of you listening here might be up there in Wisconsin. University of Wisconsin fraternity is suspended after pledges are forced to wear something. So you're like, okay, this is oh, going to be bad. Must be brutal, right? This is bad. You want to be forced to wear? Dora the Explorer backpacks. The inhumanity. <laughs> University of Wisconsin-Madison fraternity was suspended after the chapter forced new members to wear a Dora the Explorer backpack, among other requirements the school announced. A student-led committee on student organizations made the decision to suspend Alpha Sigma Phi, through March 24th and place them on probation through December 11th because the requirements were tantamount to hazing. Uh, that seems a little over the top right there. Dora the Explorer, but you don't have daughters, man, so you're going to get out of the Dora the Explorer thing probably. Is that a problem? Is it that big of an issue? I thought Dora no. was cute. No? Oh, man. <laughs> if you just, when your daughter is young and you go from like Elmo, which just gets sucked in your brain, you'll probably have that one with, maybe maybe I'm just being sexist. Maybe your sons will love Dora the Explorer. It's true, yeah. But the Dora the Explorer, man, that one will stick in your head. <laughs> At least it's educational though, right? Like we're Border still in line. Wiggles land and there's not, I don't feel yeah. like there's any substance in Wiggles. From Dora, Dora, Dora to Boots the Monkey to this <laughs> and that, you're like, oh my gosh. And she stares at you like she's looking into your soul. <laughs> oh gosh. All right. You convinced me. That sounds terrifying. Yes. 
Here's another one out of Texas. Fans can now eat and sleep at Texas Chainsaw Massacre gas station. Uh, subtext here, Ian's nightmare. Why, <laughs> why would anyone, why do people do this to themselves? And like, it always blows my mind that people are like, oh, I'd like to pay money for you to scare me, for me to be more frightened than I already am. I mean, roller coasters notwithstanding, this uh, this is like this just gives me the heebie-jeebies. No, thank you. Do you know I hate roller coasters too? Although like, that mostly because they make me feel sick. Uh, I went to Wheaton College. Then after college, lived at Wheaton. One of Wheaton's famous alumnus, who you don't hear much about, is Wes Craven. Okay. So Wes Craven, Nightmare on Elm Street, right? Right, created it. Uh, I went for uh, seven to ten years. My wife and I lived off of Elm Street in Wheaton that he named it after. No kidding. Yeah, kind of freaked me out. Uh, yeah, that's freaking me out yep. right now. Yep. All right, Georgia, woman arrested over McDonald's apple pie. A craving for McDonald's apple pie lands a woman in jail. It happened under the Golden Arches on the highway in Covington. A woman placed her order for the flaky dessert with gooey, warm apple filling. She was told it would be a five-minute wait. Employees told the police that the customer was angry because she expected to get the pie for free because she had to wait. She went into a rage, started screaming, swearing, punching her fist in the air. She was arrested. Uh, the police showed up and arrested the customer for disorderly conduct. The pie would have just cost her a dollar six. But now the police say the tasty treat will cost her so much more. Oh, boy. There you go. Wah, wah. North yep. Carolina woman charged after calling 911 claiming her heart had been stolen. <laughs> I don't like what leads people to do stuff like this. When deputies arrive, <laughs> they say alcohol. <laughs> that's probably true. When deputies arrived, they said uh, the man claimed that her or the woman claimed that her name was Rudolph the reindeer. <laughs> I'm going and, alcohol. And that her brother had stolen her heart out of her chest. So she's being fined, right? So oh, she's being jailed under a bond of $1,000. I just don't get the fake 911 calls. There's so many other things you could do to thrill-seek. Why is, why is that one so popular? That's it. Connecticut. Uh, a Connecticut man is fighting a ticket for distracted driving. He got a ticket because uh, the police officer said he saw him driving on his cell phone. You want to know what the man's defense is? He said that wasn't a cell phone. That was a hash brown. Oh, gosh. He was cited last April after he says stopping at a McDonald's on his way to work and eating a hash brown that was mistaken for a cell phone. <laughs> Did the officer see him eating that the cell phone? Like what? What? What's go? That feels like a different move there. <laughs> so many questions. He says I don't blame the cop for misinterpreting what he saw, but the fact of the matter is there was no cell phone use, and we have a cell phone records to establish the fact. His lawyer said so far the man has spent over a thousand dollars in legal fees fighting a ticket that carries a three hundred dollar fine. The police <laughs> do not believe him. Oh, oh, that's a that's a real twist at the end there. there okay, go. so here we go, Florida. There you go. We We're in Florida, baby. Gotta celebrate Florida. Gotta go. Here's a guy that just believes in love. Police officers in trouble for allegedly playing Barry White music <laughs> while letting an arrested couple make out in his patrol car. <laughs> the story. I can't even read most of this story on the air. It's just not appropriate. I'm just trying to imagine how that arrangement was brokered. Like how? Hey, we know that we're under arrest. Could you just real quick? Play some Barry White while we make out in the back of your car. <laughs> and apparently he he obliged. So that's, that's it for me. You're under arrest. <laughs> I'm so uncomfortable right now. Oh, well, I'm going to skip my last one. It was out of Florida, too. Had to do with a man throwing a cookie at his girlfriend. Oh. But I don't want to end in a sad way. Think about the cookie one we already did where the guy bought all the cookies. All the Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> Thanks, that Pastor Brian. Much happier. Hey, man, I enjoyed the show today. Any big plans for the evening on this Wednesday night? 
Probably falling asleep at 7.35 on the couch again. Yeah, that's... Last night I went to Hamilton. Tonight I'm going we back know. to a church meeting. So, uh, oh, all right. It's the life of a pastor. S- similar types of events. It's the life of a pastor. Anyway, we're glad that you joined us on this uh, this evening on The Common Good. My name is Brian Fromm, uh, along with Ian Simpkins. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow, man, on a Thursday. We're excited to do this together. Uh, I'm being told to keep going. <laughs> Let's just keep going. Let's just see how much time that Brian can just fill. <laughs> just keep saying words, Brian. Uh, so tomorrow we've got some interviews. We're going to talk about some more things. And uh, it was fun having Dallas Jenkins. In fact, hopefully we'll have Dallas Jenkins on again. That's right. Well, this has been The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Again, my name is Brian Fromm along with Ian Simpkins. We hope that you join us tomorrow. Have a great evening, Chicagoland. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.